0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Right after Proverbs. We just finished our lessons in Proverbs, and we want to pick up and go right on through. And uh, we'll have this one this Wednesday night, another one next Wednesday night. I want you to notice verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, many have disputed as to whether or not Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but I think it could be very little plainer than to say that he's the son of David and king in Jerusalem because David only had one son that was king in Jerusalem. So who would that be? Solomon. And Solomon was king, and uh, he was the son of David. Uh, There's a lot of critics that debate this, and you can read you can read a lengthier discussion in fine print of more that criticized whether or not it was Solomon or not that wrote the book of Ecclesiastes than you have in the book of Ecclesiastes. But uh, we won't go into the volumes and all the things that are done. We'll just take it for face value like it says. Ecclesiastes or the preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And I believe it was Solomon. Others may differ. And uh, I want you to notice... Uh, then this first chapter, and we'll divide it up a little bit as we go along, but the first part that we see is the vanity of life, how vain life is, and all of life is vain apart from the Lord. You know, if it were just to eat, drink, and be merry, as Paul said, if in this life only we have hope, we have all been most miserable. In fact, he says, "If in this life only we have hope in christ we 're all men most miserable so if we in this life only we have hope apart from Christ, we have no hope without that, then we certainly would be miserable. So we not only have hope for life but we have hope for life everlasting, and that life everlasting is in the promises of the Lord that he has made to us and the provision that he 's made for us but the Standpoint that from which we view the book of Ecclesiastes is from the earthly standpoint, from the human standpoint, from the standpoint of nature and things that are. And it says many times under the sun. In fact, the statement "under the sun" is used twenty-nine times in this book. The things that he beheld under the sun are on this earth, without any relationship to looking to the heavens and to the hereafter. Just considering what we deal with day by day in this life. And that would leave us all very uh, low, wouldn't it, if we had no hope beyond it. And so the preacher is going to deal with things concerning this life and concerning nature and concerning man and concerning the trials that we endure. If you'll notice in verse 2, it says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. He uses the word five times in this one verse. Vanity. Meanless. The emptiness of all that's apart from God. The uselessness and how vain it is. Vanity is mentioned many times. At least 38 times in this small book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times he's saying everything is worthless and meaningless apart from God. All through the things that he discusses in this book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity means absurdity. It means frustration. It has to mean futility and even nonsense. It doesn't make any sense if we just relate to this life and this life alone apart from God. It's all very meaningless. And so we find that this thought under the sun that is spoken of. If you notice in verse 3, it says, "...what profit hath a man uh, of all his labor which he taketh under the sun?" That means that this life is temporary and insignificant. Because if you consider that that's all there is to life, and you know the atheists do that, people that believe in no hereafter, the Sadducees did that. The Sadducees didn't believe in any eternity or any resurrection or any hereafter. And if that's all you had, and life would be very temporary and very insignificant, it wouldn't have any meaning at all, would it? But we thank God that beyond what is presented here in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can see that there's more to it than what we see on the surface. And we need to realize there's more to it than what we see on the surface. So look at it, verse 2. Vanity of vanities saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities he repeats it. Then he says all is vanity. Everything the vanity of life. In verse 3 it says what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Can all of his labor make him contented or happy? We find that no, no profit that, he is, that has been made will make him contented or happy. A lot of people say, well, now, I'll be happy if I can just really be successful. And if I can rake in this money, I have a good high paying salary. Or if I'm on the, the real high payrolls of the country. But a lot of people get on a high payroll and the first thing you know, they're not on a payroll at all. And, you know, we find that time and again. And, of course, it's a it's a great it's a great Feeling of loss. If you've been on the top of the ladder and you fall down to the bottom of it, that's a great feeling of loss, isn't it? Depression uh, sets in. All kinds of uh, inner feelings and emotions. And you feel like that one time you made it and now look where you are. There's a lot of people having those feelings this time of year. Especially those that get laid off or something. So we find that there's always... uh, The word profit says, what profit hath a man of all this labor? Uh, Ten times... In the book, this word is used, and it means a business term. What good is it doing? me? How, how much have I made out of doing this? Of all the labor that I've taken under the sun, what good has it done me? Do people ever ask themselves that question? Do you ever ask yourself the question that all the labor, all the work you put in, all the toil, and the older you get, the first thing you know, you feel uh, everything slipping away, and you say, well, one of these days I'm going to leave it all behind. Who's going to get it and what are they going to do with it? If I have anything left at all. So, what profit, he says, is there? What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? And then notice verse 4. Begin with verse 4 through 11. We have the course of nature. What is the course of nature that we see that continually and continuously is in progress to bring about our necessities of life? The sun and the wind and the rain and various other things. And we'll have all of these various things spoken of. And begin with verse 4. Look, it says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. Another cometh. But the earth abideth forever. Well, in the midst of all the, the down points of... of uh, the course of nature, we're reminded of the eternity of God and the, and the eternity of the earth. All along, every once in a while, there'll be dropped in a thought, well, you know the earth abides forever, and you know Jesus said he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth, the first heaven and the first earth will be passed away. He's going to cleanse it, and there's going to be a renewed earth. One of these days in the future. And then it says in verse 5, The sun also riseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where, where he arose. Then the wind, the wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man, all things are full of labor. Look at that. The the course of nature is full of labor. Man cannot utter it. Think of this for a moment. How much do we give credit to the things of nature and working in their course and the much anxiety and pain and labor and fatigue, all of these things, how do we calculate the necessary work of all that God has set in motion to our existence. You know, I don't see how anyone could not recognize that that if there were not God, if there was not God who has made the sun to function as it does, and every morning the sun rises or the earth turns and we have the sun to, to warm up the earth, and then at night, well, it's a different story. And then we have all the, the wind to do its work. We have the rain to come, and then the vapors go back up, and then It has a circulation way to come back down to us. And it cleanses itself in the process. And the rivers flow. Notice it says, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Why doesn't it run over? Because it goes up and God sends it back down again. And do you think of all the labor of the natural laws, the laws of nature and the course of nature for what? Our existence. What if the sun did not shine? What if the earth did not revolve? What if 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 there was not this circulation of the water into the heavens and then back down to the earth and running into the sea and making its course again and cleansing itself of all the impurities that we put in? What if all that wasn't working? And so sometimes we fail to realize that God has put these things into action for our good and for our life. Our very life depends upon it. We're always talking about the, the... Uh, earth and how to take care of it. And we've got programs after programs nowadays. And we're getting more mindful of the fact that that it does have something to do with our existence, doesn't it? But why couldn't we recognize that a long time ago? But the Bible is telling us here that all of these things, all things are full of labor. Verse 8, man cannot utter it. And God himself authorized the great laws of this universe. If God had not authorized and Uh, authored them as well as authorized them, but He he is the author of them. And He's the author and finisher of our faith as well. But all these things have to be for our good and for His glory. We ought to recognize them, even as Christians at least, for our good. And we ought to recognize them for His glory. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he has made all things for his pleasure. There was not anything that he has made that was not for his pleasure. He gets a pleasure out of all of his creation. And even you and I should render unto him that which will please him instead of... Uh, grieve God. Remember in the days of Noah, it says it grieved him at his heart because what? The wickedness of man was great in the earth. And the very, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was telling man that he's a responsible creature, that there is an authority over us. I think I mentioned the other day that how that they had on this, uh, uh, what's his name, Bill Moyer's program on the PBS station, these Intellectuals arguing about how mean God was because He brought judgment upon the world in Noah's day, and all they were focusing on is that God was so mean that He brought this about. And I never heard one of them say that that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. He expected better, and He wanted man to be more accountable to Him, and that's why He was grieved. That's why God is grieved today, because man sins. You and I are responsible creatures. I was thinking, Brother Wendell brought me a wonderful gift, and I don't want to say too much about it, but I think I could part the Red Sea with it. He don't, you don't mind. He made me a staff and shepherd's staff. And anyway, what I was thinking about that is that uh, it's so wonderful to have that kind of a gift and to recognize that when someone says pastor or shepherd, it lays a, it makes you feel a great sense of responsibility. A great sense of responsibility. We say, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." Well, He carries a great deal of responsibility, and if people recognize Brother Randy and I as pastors, that puts a great deal of responsibility upon us to be the right kind of shepherd, under shepherd. And beloved, I appreciate the respect that people give when they uh, say. You're my pastor. And when, I, when I, try to, I want to try to be a pastor, it makes me more mindful of my responsibility. And I am mindful of it. And I do want to be the very best, honestly, before all of you this night, I can say, I want to be the very best pastor and preacher that, that I can be for God and for you. And I feel that sense of responsibility. And uh, anyway, we find that, could we, can we thank God enough for the fact that He is the author of all these things? All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. It says the eye is not satisfied. Verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. From the human standpoint, things have to continue to depend upon the past and they are continuously a prediction of the future. By the way, if that's the case in this earth, in, in this earthly realm that we're talking about, what about God? If God has been faithful to us in the past and good to us in the past, do you think He's going to be mean to us tomorrow and put us down the next day? God is faithful, isn't He? And if the things of nature and the things in the course of history repeat themselves, and there's nothing new, do you think that we can expect something brand new of God, that He's going to change His character and His nature, and He's going to deal with us differently tomorrow than He has today or yesterday? No. He's going to deal with us in mercy, and in grace, and in love. And we can depend on it. In fact, we can far more depend upon it than we can these other things that we look at from a human standpoint. He says, there's no new thing under the sun. Uh, I remember a lot of times I'd search out a sermon and I'd think, boy, this is brand new. I mean, this has never been uh, thought of or heard of or seen before. And a statement like that with those exact words, it just cannot be. I mean, it's brand new. Go back and I start researching and I find out that one of our professors had it. And I found out he got it from... One before him centuries before, and it goes back for three or four centuries, and you'll find some preacher there, and I don't know where they got it. They got it from someone else, because of the fact that knowledge and the things that are true just have a way of repeating and coming out, and the things that are false as well. You have the same old false doctrines today. 2,000 years from the time of John that existed in John's day when he says that those that deny that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, this is the spirit of Antichrist. We have it today, don't we? No different. Then we have also those that love and walk in the paths of faith, just like they did in the days of the apostles. So, now then, in verse 10 it says, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? Yes, you the question. Look at verse 10. It hath been already of old time which was before us. You know, we think we have all these mechanisms of, of strength to build. You know, they cutting down the mountain down here on the side of the road. You say, my, those are mighty machines. Go back and figure out how they made the pyramids. Wonder wonder what they had in those days. I'm sure that they didn't just grab those rocks and throw them up there the next step, don't you? There's something, they had some kind of mechanism that was pretty ingenious to be able to do what they did. And you and I think that the we're talking about thousands of years ago, aren't we? And yet we think we've come so far. And I'm sure it's far advanced because science does advance and technology. But on the other hand, don't think that there never was anything before us because there have been some mighty beautiful buildings of old that we look back as, I'm telling you, we stand in awe at them, do we not? So, it says, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of the for, of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come which uh, with those that shall come after. In other words, there's a repetition of things, of knowledge and of uh, events, as well as uh, progress in every direction. Verse 12 gives us a new section here. Notice it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. You're again stated that uh, the one that is uh, th- that's giving us this book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, who was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon was unrivaled in wisdom. If you look at verse 16, he says, I... Uh, I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me. Remember, it was Solomon that prayed for wisdom, wasn't he? he? says, I'm but a child, I know do not know how to lead this great nation of people. And he prayed for wisdom. He's unrivaled in wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 8, he's unequaled with wealth. We'll get these things in a moment. And then he's unlimited, he had an unlimited host of servants, that's 2, verse 7, you'll see his servants. And he's in unrestricted pursuit of carnal pleasures, in verse 3 of the second chapter, and then unusually unusually extensive uh, building activities that he had. And you'll see the buildings that he made. Later on, as we discuss in the second chapter, most of these things are found in the second chapter. But verse 12 says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, notice verse 13. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. Now, look, he set out to do this. And he says... This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all his vanity and vexation of spirit, the grief of his wisdom, and all the work that he had put into it. Verse 13, he gave his heart to seek it out and to search it. All things that are done under the heavens. Under heaven. Think of man's occupations and all the works that are put forth. You and I work and we serve and we learn and we... Build and we do all the things that we do. And you know, I had one professor one time to say that after we've spent all of our time in this life, and he was talking to preachers too, by the way, he said we'll be just like a grain of sand on the shores of time. If you look at it from the earthly standpoint, that's what it amounts to. We'll be forgotten. But the things that we lay up in heaven, no wonder that God made a difference to lay up treasures in heaven. He says this life is pretty temporal, isn't it? And rather meaningless. It's vanity of vanities. And there's no value at all apart from God. There's no value in it at all. It just keeps us eating and drinking and sleeping and living. But after it's all said and done, the only thing that really lasts is what we've done for the Lord. I think I was showing Brother Wendell earlier today on the generosity. It says the only thing that we can take with us in our cold Cold hand, when death comes, is what we've given away. Is what we've given to someone. That's all you're going to take with you. It's what you've done for someone else. And so, uh, we have another little poem, I'm sure, or phrase, or whatever you might want to call it, but all of us, most all, all of us are familiar with it. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's it. If you look at it from the earthly standpoint, friends, you'll have a very dismal picture of everything. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is given to us, because it says, these are things done under the sun. I remember Brother Esau, Brother Abdu Esau, when he first gave his testimony, the morning, he, some of you were here, and he was telling about how he worked for uh, an American... Uh, bank over in, uh, in, in the Holy Land in Palestine, Lebanon wasn't it, over in Lebanon, and he was telling about his experience and he said if this is all there is to life, he almost was ready to commit suicide, he was so depressed and down and never had any uh, life and light toward the future at all because he says if all it is is me coming to this bank and working and going home and sleeping and, getting and eating my meals and getting up and going back to work, and if, if that's all it is, it's very futile. If there's nothing beyond this life, and so that's why we need to keep our eyes focused not on this earth and not on earthly things and not on temporal things. They're here for our using. We're going to be told how to handle those in a minute. How to handle our blessings that get come to us uh, from the earthly uh, benefits and how that they're given to us of the Lord. But... Uh, To glory in them or to think this is all there is, it's very futile. So notice here it says in verse uh, 14, he, he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Life itself cannot supply the answers to purpose and value. This can only come from God. We must see where the real values are. Look at verse 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. There's plenty of things that are wanting we lack. And he says you can't make straight out of the crooked. And by the way, the more you live in this life, the more you realize there are crooked things and crooked, crooked people too. Right? I mean, this is, this is man. This is carnality we're talking about. This is earth. This is uh, dealing with the things of, of people And if you did not find the goodness of God and the the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the lives of Christian people to make a difference of the attitudes and the characteristics of, of the things of this life, it would be a very sad picture, wouldn't it? Very sad. You know why? Because a Christian, a child of God, has something inside of him that tells him to live different, to treat people different. To love them, to have compassion, to have sympathy, to care. And the unregenerate person does not have that element in him to make him that sympathetic and concerned. He just doesn't have it. In fact, there are many people that do not care how they hurt anyone as long as they get what they want. That's a sad situation, isn't it? That's sad. And every time we become selfish, and I have to examine myself. You do too, but I have to examine myself. Am I being selfish? And if I am i got to get this thing right. Because it's not right for us to be that way. We're only going to live a short time. Man, if we gain the whole world. Jesus said, what shall it profit? A man, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You say, oh, I've got a long time before me. You don't know how long you have before you. That friend, Brother... Uh, Lester and Joyce had. She was in her 50s, died with cancer. You don't know how long you have. And you don't know if that's the way it'll go either. You might have it go down here to Y, and before you get home tonight, hit an automobile there, and it'll just flatten you out, and there won't be anything left of it. I'm not trying to say that to scare you, just to make you realize that it's a fact of life that we do not know. We do not know. And so, we better consider all blessings from God day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. I'm thankful right now for you and the church and for every child of God in it. And we ought to be thankful for each other. but especially thankful for the salvation that the Lord has provided for us. I've seen all the works... That are done under the sun. In verse fifteen, he says, "That which is crooked cannot be made straight; that which is wanting cannot be numbered." Verse sixteen, he says, "I commune with my own heart." Well, it's good to take uh, account of yourself, isn't it? I commune with my own heart, saying, "Lo, I am come to a great estate." Oh yeah, I've come to a great estate. You know, Solomon was richer than all. Uh, kings, remember Jesus speaks of Solomon. And says even Solomon in all of what his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But he does speak of Solomon in all his glory. He says, Lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they have been before me in Jerusalem, and that's true too. See, both of these things were true. He says, I've come to great estate. I have more wisdom, and he says, Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and he had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I gave my heart to no wisdom, and he did. And he says, to no madness and folly, I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. Even after I found out all the wisdom, even after I had come to a great estate, even after all of this was true, and it was for Solomon, he says, yet it's all I perceived. He said, I begin to look at it, all of this in a different light. Have you ever known men that were just really masterminds and full of knowledge and intelligence. And one of these days, their life is cut off. And where is That's why the Bible says, let, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, but let him glory in, the, glory in the Lord. That the Lord has mercy on him. That the Lord has salvation. And you and I ought to realize, that if Solomon, the wisest man of all the kings, finally perceived that this also is vanity and vexation of spirit, that it's all vexation of spirit, how much more should you and I, who have not an inkling of the degree of amount of wisdom that Solomon had, how much more should we realize this truth? And then it says in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief. What? In much wisdom is much grief. Do you ever think about it that way? And he that increaseth knowledge increases sorrow. The more we know of ourselves, the less satisfied. Shall we be with our own hearts when we really realize what we are? Self-examination is good. You know, Paul says that a man ought to examine himself. And he even said that let us examine ourselves, see whether we be in the faith. So examine ourselves. So we need to examine ourselves not only as far as wisdom. Uh, Solomon said, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. So, the more we know of ourselves, the less satisfied we become of our own hearts. And of mankind, the less we are willing to trust in them. There are some people worth your trust. But mankind in general, if you look at mankind in general and say, boy, I'm going to trust everybody, you're deceiving yourself with what you're doing. There are few people you can trust, not all people. There are few people. And the Bible warns us against even that. It says, put not your trust in princes, doesn't it? You know what the center verse of the Bible is? It says, put not your trust in man. That's the middle verse in the Psalms of the whole Bible, right in the middle. And so we cannot, we must trust in Man, only as God, is in that man that, in whom we can put our trust. And that he's a godly man, and that he is worthy of our trust. And then when you come to that aspect of it, you will be trusting. Well, our time's about gone. I wanted to get into that second uh chapter, but I think I'll just cap this one off by saying this. There are three propositions. We'll get into the second later on because it's the vanity of pleasure and we'll deal with it later in detail in our next lesson. But there are three propositions that I want to leave you, leave with you. No labor of man in the world can render him contented or give him true satisfaction of soul. Think of that. No labor of man in this world can... Render him to be completely contented or to give him true satisfaction of soul, and then the second one is this: earthly goods and possessions are so far from making us happy that we may even be viewed they may even be viewed as as real obstacles to our ease and quiet and tranquillity of mind. sometimes these things. Do not just make us not, uh, not they do not make us happy, but sometimes they're an obstacle to our happiness. they be, can become a hindrance to our happiness so sometimes the more material things, the more money, the more lands, the more houses, the more bonds and the more stocks, and the more things that you have doesn't mean you shouldn't try to come down the middle road and prepare for your days and prepare for your future. I'm not talking about that. But when you think that you can be satisfied by gaining everything there is, you're going to find it may be more of a hindrance to your happiness than a blessing to your happiness. And so let's learn to be content with what we have. Paul says, I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. I believe he's even talking about Texas, don't you? <laughs> I saw Tom looking up here. Maybe New Mexico. But anyway, so just a little to wake us up. The third thing is this. The third thing is this. Men know not what is not truly advantageous to uh, to them because they are either ignorant or unmindful of that which must come to pass after their death. So when we think of life, we think of also being prepared for death. The only way to be prepared for death is to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And to take life, we used to and by the way, Ron and uh, Sharon sang it at uh, Odie's funeral, one day at a time. And that's the way we need to take it, is learn to take it one day at a time. Because we don't know what will be tomorrow. And Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So exhortation to you tonight would be this. Take the blessings of life God has given you. Be thankful for them. Realize that God has created this great universe for our uh, good and our care and our keeping and our uh, pleasure day by day. That's why we have the warmth of the sun and that's why we have the snow and the rain and the heat and the cold and all of us for our good. That's why he's provided the water, the vegetables, the fruits, the food that, that we have. That's why he's provided for us every need. And He's given us the day to rejoice in. It's up to you and I to be happy with God's blessings. And any of these things apart from God's blessing will not make any one of us happy. But with His blessings, they will be sufficient. They will be sufficient. Thank God for today. I thank God for right now that we have life and and His blessings. And my prayer is that God will bless every one of you during this Christmas season with life and health and the necessities of life. And let us not be greedy.